This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to New Books Network. I'm Gadam Sulongkomer, the host of this channel. Today, I'm here with Dr. Douglas Duckworth to talk about his book, Thipitan Buddhist Philosophy of Mind and Nature. I think this is a very interesting uh, philosophical work on uh, Thipitan Buddhist, and uh, I'm sure the listeners will have a very interesting and engaging time listening to Dr. Douglas. So let me straight away go to the author himself and ask about you know, his background and how he came about writing this book. So Dr. Douglas, can you tell us something about uh, your background? Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Longkumar, and thank you for having me. Um, I teach uh, Buddhism at uh, Temple University in Philadelphia in the United States. And um, I was fortunate to go to India as an undergrad where I was introduced to Buddhism and Bodhgaya. And, um, you know, I fell in love with the tradition and met wonderful teachers. And, um, you know, after spending a few years, um, after I finished my bachelor's degree in Nepal and India, um, I went back to graduate school and uh, the University of Virginia. And, um, you know, I've been fortunate to to uh, spend time learning from, you know, a lot of teachers in um, Nepal and in India and Tibet and the United States. And, um, um, you know, I've just been you know, fascinated with uh, Buddhism and Tibetan or Himalayan Buddhism uh, for I guess about 30, a little over 30 years now. Oh, yeah, um, that's that's really interesting, yeah. So um, uh, this work, uh, um, I mean, as you've told me, you have um, um background in Buddhism and, you know, uh, going around the uh, Himalayas and all. So um, obviously there is that the background to you of uh, looking and studying and understanding, trying to understand Buddhism. But particularly coming to this book, uh, how did this book about the idea for this and you know um yeah how did this the idea for this book started yeah right um i guess uh when i was an undergrad when i first became interested in buddhism it was through a philosophy class and um i'd always been interested in in philosophy broadly and um 
uh, when I learned about Buddhism, you know, I just uh, do dove in, was very interested in learning more. And, um, you know, 30 years ago, there wasn't as many books uh, available in translation. Um, but now, you know, there's a lot of things, you know, good translations available. I think our understanding is getting better. Uh, Tibetan and uh, Buddhism in um, in the Tibetan language is really rich. And, um, you know, I thought the time was right to try to give some type of broad overview of uh, Buddhist thought and practice, um, because a lot of the studies that I'd seen were, you know, on particular historical figures, you know, particular texts, uh, particular traditions. And that's great. But um, I thought it would be helpful to try to synthesize uh, these traditions and think about you know, what issues are at stake, uh, particularly for a broader audience that 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 um, is coming from you know a, a philosophical perspective, uh, but also for people who are Buddhist practitioners as well as others who are based in a particular tradition and want to see how that particular tradition is contextualized within both the broader Buddhist world and also the broader kind of intellectual conversations around uh, you know, Buddhist theory, Buddhist practice, how these relate. So um, I, I thought, you know, since I had tenure at my university and I was on sabbatical leave, uh, and I'm on sabbatical now again, so it's been seven years, I was, I was, I, I thought, you know, why not write this book? Uh, it's a book that's uh, kind of overambitious. It's really broad in scope, but I felt that it was necessary, that it filled a gap in just providing a accessible introduction, but also an introduction that was not, um, you know, solely on the surface, but really got into some of the, the kind of deep issues and uh, difficult points in in Buddhist traditions as they are practiced in uh, in the Himalayas and in, in Tibet in particular. Yeah, uh, that's quite interesting because I think as I also came to this book, um, I mean, someone who is actually beginning to look into Buddhism who is from anthropology background, I also have a background in philosophy. Um, I mean, we know Buddhism from a general point of view, but then looking at certain particular um, branches of Buddhism and specifically independent Buddhism because there are so many branches, texts, teachings that are there and to actually kind of have a craft, have an idea of what kind of discussion and the branches that are there, the discussion that are going on, I think for me personally, I think it has been a really robust work in that sense. So uh, the way you have described it, I think it really kind of um, caters to the way you have thought about it and the way you kind of envision the book, this book to be. So that's quite really interesting, yeah. Right. What helped me? Yeah. What helped me was um, yeah. Carry on. My, my dissertation, and which became a book uh, called Mipam on Buddha Nature. So Mipam was like a, a late nineteenth and early twentieth century figure. So he was quite late in the you know, thousand year trajectory of Buddhism in Tibet, and he really synthesized a lot of these traditions. And I translated another text by one of his students, actually his student's student, Pubatuku uh, or Putrul, called "Distinguishing the Views and Philosophies." And in that text, he he just shows a range of um, of positions on different topics. I was really surprised. I was like, "Wow, this you know all of this is called Buddhism. All of this is called Tibetan Buddhism." But there's so much diversity. There's so 
these traditions are so different uh, that it, it was fascinating to me. And uh, he was at Nyingma um, and he was showing the different, you know, you know assertions on different uh, philosophical points by these different uh, traditions like the Kagyu and Jonang and Sakya and Giluk in particular. Uh, so that really was kind of the background that that um, um, kind of enabled me through kind of working through those texts and his teacher's teacher Vipam in particular that that set me up to to um, try to tackle this this book that looked you know beyond sectarian traditions but what looked at uh, kind of a variety of approaches but trying but trying to kind of look at the core issues that uh, are enlivening these debates and um, and try to put it in conversation with with uh, as you said you know philosophy more uh, broadly on a global scale yeah yeah that's kind of interesting yeah so moving into the contents of the book um you mostly talk about the my language in the world and the interconnectedness to this and um, in the introduction obviously you introduce uh, from which perspective you're looking at it from and the people that you're looking at it from and specifically the Matya Maka, you know yoga jara and the, uh, you're looking at also nagarjuna the aspect of emptiness the ultimate truth the middle way and all of those aspects so can you give a short introduction to what actually all of those concepts are and what actually are you kind of specifically delving into yeah right so i struggled with you know how how i would voice the book um and initially like i i was thinking about constructivism and realism like these are the two um uh themes that i wanted to show that are interrelated um and and as you said you know madhyamaka and yogachara those are the two main uh mahayana philosophical traditions from india and um um, you know, but Madhyamaka, there's many different ways that that gets interpreted, the middle way, and also Yogacara, there's many ways it gets in, interpreted. And so I, was, I really struggled with how to do this. And um, and I, also constructivism, that could also be a Madhyamaka tradition. It could also be a Yogacara tradition. So it didn't really fit very well. But the Tibetans, they talk about the two chariot traditions, the um, Shingdani. And these are two, like mind only, um, and Madhyamaka. And I decided that you know those that contrast uh, would be good. Although mind only tends to get a bad rep, you know, a, uh, a bad reputation in Tibet is kind of like as a, as an inferior uh, philosophical tradition to Madhyamaka. But um, at the same time, that's the language, that's the indigenous language that was used in Tibet. And um, but I didn't want to just stick with the indigenous language alone because you know I have to translate too. And so I I thought about the terminology of phenomenology and ontology as you know roughly corresponding to the kinds uh, or the styles of analysis that are done by you know Badyamaka. This primarily about ontology and deconstructing essences, uh, de deconstructing being or or what is. You know, primarily oriented towards objects. And uh, mind only or yogachara being more attuned to uh, phenomenology and looking at phenomena appearances, uh, the mode of, of what shows up in, in, in a lived world, and primarily taking the starting point of subjects. So um, again, phenomenology uh, is also a disputed term in 
uh, English and, uh, you know, Western European traditions as well. And so I think um, I struggled with, well, should I use phenomenology? Am I interested? Am I kind of making things more muddled? But then I realized that, you know, these terms are are, um, contested. Uh, and they're contested just like mind only and Vidyamaka are contested in, in the Buddhist world. And so it actually makes sense to try to put these in conversation and not really try to map, you know, one of them on the other, but just talk about these family resemblances between these and and how some of the synergy between these two modes of analysis, uh, some uh, and how they're complementary and, and even mutually entailing um, kind of animated my uh, decision to kind of use these terms, so that that um, that's is what I set up in the in the introduction, trying to think about method and 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 how I can you know that how I can structure the this conversation in, in broad strokes, but also to be kind of honest to the particular traditions and in particular that the Tibetan traditions that I'm you know primarily focused on. Yeah. Um. I, I actually. Yeah. That's quite interesting. So, uh, moving on, you actually talk about in the uh, preceding chapter. You talk about uh, the aspect of mind only, and then um, kind of delve into the aspect of okay, you know, the object and the subject, uh, and you know, trying to delve into trying to understand this aspect. So, can you give, give us an overview of uh, what actually this discussion is all about? and you know in the subject of phenomenology and ontology you know whether this feed and this understanding of the nature of the reality the world and the being how does this understanding fit in this perspective yeah right um yeah that's a big question um and you you had mentioned this kind of mind language world um and you know rather than like a, a mental subject uh, uh, or like a mental substance and an extended substance, like a kind of the, the mind body dualism that, that is the legacy of, of Descartes. I find that in India uh, and in Buddhism in particular, this it's more of a tripartite, um, you know, three part structure where you have the mind, you have um, the, the language and then, um, world or body, speech, and mind, you know, another way that this gets articulated. So I tried to structure the book around each of these topics, you know, a chapter on each, you know, so the mind um, in one chapter where I, you know, I talk about, um, you know, the mind is an op- can be an object that is deconstructed or that it's, uh, it's, or it could be like an illusory appearance. It can be um, you know, undefined, un- undefined and undefinable, um, kind of a mysterious uh, essence, but it can also be a subject that is, um, you know, that the mode by which the world arises and um, in terms of a phenomenological reduction, you know, that is everything we know is something known. Um, so we can't really separate this kind of subject you know, abstract subjects um, out of a uh, a proper analysis, or at least a phenomenological analysis, and then um, um, in with the language, what it means to be um, a thing, or what it means to be a being, is 
uh, you know, I believe it was Quine that said it was it was the content of a variable. So it's basically it's it is X. So we, we call it something. We define it. We delimit it within a certain kind of uh, linguistic or conceptual boundary. Um, and India is very rich, has a very rich philosophy of language, uh, you know, Sanskrit and um, um, the medium of, of basic of philosophy is, is, is language, just the way that the medium of science, you know, the language of science is mathematics. Uh, um, and um, language also is, is um, um, the constructive role of language is very, um, you know, rich and interesting and, and um, um, the philosophy of language as it is developed in India, I think is only matched like in the 20th century with like Wittgenstein and Heidegger, who were like the, the, the forefathers of kind of the, kind of these two broad analytic and continental traditions. Um, but we find, and I tried to make some, you know, connections to some of the disputes in uh, in India and Tibet with, you know, both the early and later, you know, Wittgenstein and Heidegger's. Um, so anyway, speech and then body uh, or world. So body, speech, mind, um, mind, language, world. So the, the last chapter, when I look at um, um, world or, or body, I try to theorize uh, Tantra a bit. And I draw upon Merleau-Ponty's notion of um, flesh, like the, uh, where, you know, like the, use the example of a hand, you know, the hand is both the, the, touching another hand, it's both a subject and an object. So the hand touching itself, or a, a hand touching another hand, it's, it's, um, um, you know, this, this notion of like, we are the, the flesh on the flesh of the world or, or the eyes of the world. And, um, this kind of collapse of of uh, subject and object that gets enacted or performed in in Buddhist practices. Uh, so it's not just theory; it's not just abstraction or kind of um, disembodied thought, but it's also enacted in rituals, in communities, in kind of lived experiences of uh, contemplative practice. So, um, yeah. So I think that. You know, that's the, the guiding structure of the book or those three, you know, body, speech and mind to use Buddhist kind of indigenous language or or um, mind, uh, language and world, uh, which is uh, the language of how these are all interconnected and not really distinguishable, um, actually, only virtually distinguishable. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Saks.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Yes, I think... Um... That, that is quite interesting. So let's just um, dissect these uh, concepts one by one. And I specifically want to go to the portion where you actually discuss about the aspect of self-awareness or awareness. And this is where you actually talk about um, this concept known as the objective idealism. And 
so this is where you also argue that there is this internal uh, relation between the perceiver and the perceived. So in terms of this uh, self-awareness, specifically coming to this, can you expound more on this uh, idea that you talk about? Yeah. Yeah, so you know, that term self-awareness, you know, has a lot of different meanings or swasambedana, swasambiddhi in, in Sanskrit. Um, and, um, you know, it obviously doesn't mean an awareness of self, right? Because the Buddhists are, uh, you know, anatma vada, right? They, they don't claim a self. Um, and so uh, I make a distinction between um, different types of self-awareness, but an important distinction is between reflective awareness and reflexive awareness. So reflective awareness is like introspection, like thinking about the self, um, Whereas reflexive awareness is like a, you know, it's built into the structure of awareness that it's kind of self-presenting as it presents an object. And um, this, people often use the term idealism, you know, as a way to describe Yogacara or or even mind only, that that term that that, uh, Tibetans will use, simzam, mind only, uh, when People talk about it in English, or uh, often, you know, idealism is thrown around um, without much reflection about what that means. What does idealism mean? And I try to make it a, a distinction between kind of subjective idealism, which is basically, you know, the, um, the like Bishop Barclay, right? Uh, that everything, you know, there is no external world. Um, it's all just collapsed into the the, the internal mind, um, and and uh, you know unlike Barclay, you know the Buddhists don't have this God, so I'm not going to to that that Barclay describe. But um, so, but anyway, the subjective idealism. But I wanted to contrast that with an objective idealism that that is all relations are internal relations. So there is really nothing outside um, that the the, the the, in the world, the world is, I guess, uh, bipolar, you could say, like there's a, a subjective aspect and an objective aspect, and these are relational, but we can't really talk about anything outside our lived experience of the world. You know, that, that becomes metaphysical, that becomes, uh, you know, beyond the observable universe, so to speak. We, and it doesn't really, it's not meaningful in a, um, you know, an empirical sense, in a Buddhist sense. Um, to talk about something that we can't experience. Uh, it just becomes like a, a metaphysical claim that is, you know, um, uh, just a dogma. So this term objective idealism, I drew from Charles Peirce, um, and you mentioned this internal relation. Hilary Putnam uses this kind of internal realism that there is no, um, uh, you know, nothing outside this structure this this object of objective realism, but um, there is still causal regularity within the system. So you, you know, the relation between a subject and object, or between mind and the world, is it is uh, is not random either. It's not all mental projection, nor is it kind of coming from the outer world and impinging upon the inner world. But it's just this relational structure. And so I think Yogacara is trying to articulate this. Um, structure. And um, so on one hand, it's this type of system building, kind of coming up with this system um, that's a very 
a sophisticated system of philosophy and on the one hand and then on the other hand you get um like the the Bhadyamaka tradition in particular the prasangika Bhadyamaka, that's this kind of radical deconstruction that wants to throw suspicion on any type of system building projects and and rejects um this notion of a kind of a coherent system and exposes contradictions or or prasangas right or or this reductio ad absurdum in any kind of uh, attempt to get to capture a, a whole system. So, um, you know, in each chapter, when I do talk about, you know, self-awareness or reflexive awareness, I try to show how, um, you know, both Yogacara and Vidyamaka, you know, have, you know, different ways that this is interpreted. And uh, there's this type of push and pull between these these tendencies of affirmation and negation that we see that kind of keeps the the kind of the energy of Buddhist philosophy kind of alive, you know, in between the kind of positive and negative poles like of a battery, you get this, you know, this affirmation and you know, we need the mind, we need uh, uh self-awareness uh to build a coherent epistemology, but yet wait you know, what does that mean um, to be to, have, to be self-aware? Does that mean that there is knowledge? Uh, you know, you know it, does it have an object? Is it, um, does it count as knowledge if it's not, um, if it doesn't have an object? So there's all these, this pushback of, um, against reflexive awareness um, by the Vidyamakas and Prasangika Vidyamakas in particular, and yet the centrality of this as the, as the basis of, of the world as the basis of liberation for you know, traditions of yogic practice and contemplative practice in Tibet. So, um, yeah, these issues are complicated and they're multivalent. You know, there's many different perspectives on them. Um, so, um, I, I, I touch upon it in that, uh, I believe it's the third chapter a bit, but there's, um, um, I just kind of, I feel like in this, chapter, I just um, plant the seeds of thought for people or just kind of point the way to, you know, now now you can go and look at these other texts and, and think about these issues with some context um, and, um, you know, dig further and deeper into this, uh, this issue that I just uh, introduced a bit. Yeah, yeah, true. I think the um, internal cohesiveness of the uh, you know subject-object relation and you know the way it has been conceptualized by different traditions is something uh, really interesting. And I think you you do a very good job at trying to kind of bring out that kind of discussion that is there. So that is really very interesting. So moving on to language here, and also you know uh, one of the things that I have since. Um, um, in terms of Buddhism, I have uh, looked at people, I mean, who have practiced it, but I think moving to Bhutan, uh, it has been really interesting as to how, you know, we're living with them very um, closely to see how these rituals are performed for them, the chantings that are there, the, you know, voices of instruments that are there, and voice becomes a very important um, denominator of for them to actually 
perform these rituals and also the elements of the nature that is there. So uh, this is where when we come to the, the, the nature, uh, language that is there, I think there are different understanding of uh, this concept and also this aspect of percept that is there, you know, the perception, the inception aspect of this. And this is where you also kind of talk about this aspect of, of uh, conceptualizing and perception in, in the uh, Buddhist tradition and also where you talk about how these two kind of dichotomy collapses in the tradition so can you delve more and kind of uh, uh, help us understand this aspect yeah right um yeah so buddhists have a a peculiar relation with language you know so on the one hand like language kind of obscures it um you know it's uh, it abstracts and it obscures the actual thing. Like you can talk about the taste of honey all day long, but until you put it on your tongue, you're not going to get the the experience of that taste of honey. Um, but yet, language is also important, you know, to communicate ideas, to point and um, um, and uh, draw lines around the world in different ways. Kind of open up new vist vistas through framing the world differently. So um, so on the one hand, language kind of obscures. On the other hand, it discloses. Um, and um, language is important because in, in, I think ultimately that the performative aspect is something I've really tried to emphasize across this book. Um, you know, certainly, for instance, language of emptiness uh, you know, on one hand, for certain traditions, like we see for Tsongkhapa and the Gelug tradition, your language is important to identify the object of negation. Like, what is it that we is to be negated? Um, what is it that a Buddhist is supposed to do? And what is it that a Buddhist is supposed to understand? And it's important to articulate this. It's important to articulate that there is no intrinsic essence in anything and to make that claim, make that assertion, understand it. I mean, obviously not just as a proposition, um, it should, you know, it should be contemplated and internalized, but that's an important element. And it's a, it's a means to internalize um, through, you know, expressing through conceptualizing these, these sort of important functions. Um, but at the same time, language, it's not simply about propositions, um, but it's also, uh, you know, we have like, you know, Austin's you know, speech acts. We have like illocutionary denials and locutionary denials. We have, you know, play, we have, um, we have um, language that, you know, is performative, like speech acts, like saying I do in a marriage ceremony. It's more than just stating a proposition. It's a commitment. And... Um, Particularly, this is interesting. I found in um, in articulations of emptiness in the particularly the Prasangika Vidyamaka school, where it's where there are no claims made in certain traditions, and it's only a neg it's only a negation. It's only a performance of an enactment of negation, um, and this extends not just to kind of on the debate courtyard or in in a um, dialectical context, but also, as you said, in these rituals, you know, these ritually enacted performances of this, you know, the subject object, you know, the, the, the unity of, you know, appearance and emptiness and, and, 
and um, the form and emptiness and such. So this this collapse of um, that we see, which is a theme in the book, like you mentioned, between percept and, and concept, um, between subject object, between um, um, even language as object and language as subject, right? So language is both a sound and it, it carries meaning. So you know it 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 evokes a thought in the mind, but it's also a you know it, there's like sound waves, you know, there's, it's a physical thing as well, um, but also theory and practice. And so this, this boundary between theory and practice, um, you know, how, how we theorize is a practice and our practices are, um, you know, most more than often are implicit, but there's an implicit theory about the world, um, or at least um, um, uh, practices, you know, are theorized in different ways, sometimes explicitly, uh, but more than often implicitly. And um, thinking about language, I found is a, um, um, yeah, there's a lot of resources in Buddhist uh, thought in general and Indian traditions uh, broadly that really look deeply at the nature of language and, um, you know, how language kind of mediates between the mind and the physical world. And I think this, um, um, this, uh, this chapter, I guess it's chapter four, where I, I discuss language. I, I talk a little bit about these, uh, the background in in different theories about language um, and how they you know, influence an ontology in a way that can be seen to kind of correspond. You know, a certain metaphysical views have corresponding philo philosophies of language, and um, you know, I think that's um, you know another kind of seed in this chapter that, that you know, I feel like I, that could be expanded a lot. Um, you know, there's a lot of implications that could be drawn out, but, um, um, you know, with the boundaries of the, the topic of the book, and I, I was already biting off more than I could chew and more than I probably should try to chew, but uh, um, there's certainly more to, to, to be said and to think about in terms of uh, the importance of language um, in um and kind of indian uh philosophical traditions yeah um very interesting so coming to the last one do the aspect of body and i mean many of the uh philosophical concepts and the ideas and the notions that we have is that you know the person the individual is encapsulated in the body and that there is this uh, dichotomy and distinction where one's um, perceive of the um, the outer world kind of um, ends and this is where the aspect of the other minds also comes into the picture where you your yourself and the other self is, 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 a, is a distinct self in that sense and this is where the discussion of, of uh, body in that sense also comes into the affective nature of uh, the body in that sense and that there this dichotomy also comes into the very aspect of how the individual kind of relates to the outer world and the and the environment but also at the same time as we have been discussing this um kind of ideas kind of collapses uh, when we look at certain buddhist traditions that we are talking about so can you explain and expound more on the as this aspect of a body and its um in relation to the participatory and the enacted aspect of the body and how it relates to the kind of uh, traditions that we are actually discussing about yeah 
Right. Um, so, you know, once again, you know, I've, I've said this before about the other chapters, but in this chapter in particular, chapter five, in some ways, it's the culmination of the book. Uh, and in the on at, on the other hand, it's also in some ways the the, the least developed because um, again, I feel like there's so much more that I just it was a starting point. Um, but I was, you know, trying to theorize philosophical tantra. Uh, so tantra is is such a complex um, kind of subject matter, and often, and, and for some traditions, even in Tibet, uh, like Tsongkhapa, for instance, says it, it's a it's a ritual distinction. You know, it's a distinction in method, but not in view. Um, it's not really a f philosophical distinction. But other uh, traditions, particularly in the, the Nyingma tradition, um, which I was, you know, more familiar with, um, it's there's a very important philosophical distinction with uh, um, Tantra. So um, the way that the the body is theorized, the way that um, speech and mind, how these, basically how these things, how these three elements are um, interrelated, um, how there may be you know, aspects of, uh, of a world and, you know, how different worlds get enacted when, you know, the body is manipulated, when speech is, is modulated in different ways. Um, so I was trying to draw some preliminary connections about how we might think about um, the body. And, and particularly, again, I, I drew here on um, Marlo Ponti a little bit. And again, his, his visible and invisible, his, his late work, which was unfinished, where he, he articulates this notion of flesh that doesn't really... Um, get really clarified because he, he's it's this unfinished work and he was drawing from heidegger who didn't really articulate the the body um but you know i think inspired a lot of um you know phenomenologists to think about embodiment and um and particularly environmental philosophy i think ecological thinking you know deep ecology we get this um you know interrelation of, of um, body, kind of this this extended body, the extended, um, uh, you know, where the boundaries of the body don't kind of like, as you said, you know, end with the the skin. Um, you know, we're constantly you know breathing in and out, and eating and excreting, and kind of involved in relationships with the 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 human, you know, human and more than human world. So I, I tried to connect um, some of those registers of thought with kind of tantric rituals, which tend to um, highlight the processes of like birth, right, gestation, uh, the processes of death, and kind of stages of dissolution, and as well as the processes of of sex, um, which is you know. Uh, you know, people tend to focus on on that aspect of Tantra, but Tantra is actually much more kind of rich and complex and multifaceted. And I try to draw out in some ways of thinking about um, the body and world in Tantra. And I, 
and in particular, I, I look at in more detail at the contemplative traditions of Mahamudra and Dzogchen, or the Great Perfection, that are the practices that that um, I see as developing from or extending from or enacting the philosophies of Vidyamaka and Yogacara. So these these two traditions. Uh, and the interplay between these two traditions is not simply theory, um, but is enacted, um, you know, both in different tantric uh, rituals and tantric um, tra uh, traditions, as well as these uh, distinctive kind of tantric modalities of contemplative practice that um, uh, that I find, you know, personally very interesting and um, um, transformative. So th this chapter, again, um, in some ways it culminates because it culminates the book because it, it explicitly shows this interrelation between not just subject-object, but this uh, mind, language, and world um, and how this might look like in a philosophical um, um, lived experience in this these traditions so uh it, again it was kind of um uh preliminary you know I'm, I'm hoping people will will take the threads that i put out there and 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 in these or these seeds and plant these seeds or weave these threads into kind of a uh a more you know um you know more filled out picture but um i found that um that this was something that was, um, it was a very rich tradition, but it hasn't really been articulated uh, philosophically. It really hasn't been done justice in the English language, and so I was hoping to, to you know, play a small part in doing some justice to this really rich, uh, and as you said, this living these living traditions. So it's not just theory; it's not just kind of on the bookshelves or on the armchair, but you know, part of the lived. Um, worlds uh, and societies and and uh, ritual traditions and communities that uh, across the Himalayan region. Yes. Yeah. Quite interesting. Yeah. So um, we have uh, come to the end of the discussion and I wanted to ask, um, I mean, is there any interesting project that you are currently involved in now? Yeah. So um, one of the inspirations for this book um was what the late Gene Smith called the Gaymong movement. And um, the Gaymong movement is associated with uh, people like um, Shapkar, Sotuk Rongdrol, and um, Patrul Rinpoche, and, um, and in particular, this Nyingma and Geluk kind of hybrid traditions. Um, um, because Gene Smith, you know, coined the term not the remake movement, right? The non-sectarian movement, and um, um, but when we look at these traditions, it's not like a, a big melting pot where everyone is just doing the same thing or some type of perennial philosophy where it's a, a singular tradition. But there's actually a lot of diversity, and part of that diversity is between you know Geluk traditions on one hand and um, non-Geluk, particularly Sakya Nyingma uh, traditions on the other. 
But what's interesting about the Gamelong movement and Pacha Rinpoche and his students in particular, and his students include uh, Mipam Rinpoche, who I mentioned I'd worked on, uh, but another figure, Gunsan Sonam, um, who, I'll, who I'll say more about in a second, because that's my current project. Um, they were very involved in engaging um, with the Gelug tradition, uh, you know, drawing upon the, the the rigorous philosophical traditions and monastic traditions that they developed, and spearheading like these shedras, like the first uh, monastic college in the um, in the eastern Tibet in Kham was at, at Dzogchen uh, Monastery and uh, Ningma Monastery uh, in the middle of the 19th century. And it really drew upon the success of the Giluk model of having these big monasteries and having a systematized curriculum. Uh, but it did so with a with an ethos or a vision of kind of yogic practice. And um, um, and these these traditions starting in Dzogchen really sp spread out. Um, you know, Pelphong and Sansar and other. Um, uh, monastic colleges around and, and in Bhutan uh, as well. Um, but what's interesting about the Gamelong movement is the, you know, rather than a, a, a tradition that's very based on a sectarian identity, they were very much engaged, you know, particularly across the Geluk and Nyingma. And so, in, in any case, one of Pacha Rinpoche's students was um, Gunsan Sonam, and he wrote this massive commentary on. Shantideva's Bodhicharya Avatara. And um, Pantra Rinpoche taught this text across um, different monasteries in eastern Tibet. And he did so in Geluk monasteries, uh, like Sershul Monastery, and Kagyu, and Sakya, and Nyingma, and, and Jonang. And he, he, he used different commentators from each tradition when he would teach. Um, and in any case, his student, one of his students, he had many students, um, but basically from his lecture notes, you know, wrote this massive, it's like a thousand page, it's like a thousand pages all put together. And so I've been working on this, you know, since my last sabbatical and um, it's a, um, I did publish, you know, his ninth chapter. He broke it up into you know, actually three separate commentaries, but he wrote a separate one on the ninth chapter, which I published as the profound reality of interdependence. Uh, which really takes a Giluk, you know, Tsongkhapa-influenced interpretation of the ninth chapter, which is all about Madhyamaka. But the first eight chapters is really more kind of foundational to Buddhist practice at, and, uh, you know, looking at ethics, um, looking at you know, meditation and um, and bodhicitta in particular. That's the main theme, the, the mind of awakening, this, uh, uh, you know, and connecting that with emptiness and and. And so compassion and emptiness being kind of two two aspects of, of the, the the mind of awakening. So in any case, I've been working on this translation and it's supposed to come out, you know, in a year and a half. <laughs> so uh, it's at the publishers now. Um, and um, but it's it's really been great because he really, in my mind, brings together the great perfection or Dzogchen and kind of mind training of, of um, which is an important tradition in, in cultivating kind of bodhicitta from the ground up, so to speak, and um, and really embraces kind of a broad vision of Buddhist practice. 
And in this text, Shantideva in particular was, uh, um, you know, a master of poetry, a master of philosophy, and a master of kind of um, articulating a comprehensive vision of of uh, Mahayana Buddhism. And so this text is both a, a short kind of wisdom literature uh, in aphorisms and short statements that condense in these um, the an essentialized essence of Buddhist practice, but they're also embedded in in uh, this kind of textual universe that Kumsan Sanam cites texts from across uh, you know the canon, hundreds of sutras, hundreds of shastras, and really ties them together in a very beautiful way. So I'm excited about this text, and I'm excited about um, you know being able to uh, to um, you know engage with this. Um, this tradition because it's uh, it's it's very rich and you know, I've learned a lot and um, yeah, I'm very fortunate to be able to spend my time uh, you know reading these texts and translating these texts so uh, um, yeah I hope um, yeah I, I hope someone reads it I'm glad to hear that you read uh, this uh, the Buddhist yeah. uh, philosophy of mind and nature but um, um, it's always nice to have conversations about uh, you know about these about these texts yeah true yeah really interesting project and works going on really i'm also really excited about it actually so uh, if anyone wants to reach out to you regarding this uh, current discussion that we are having if anyone wants to discuss further with you on the books and on your work uh, how which is the best way to reach out to you yeah uh probably email you know you could probably just google me and find my email i I work at Temple University, so my email is just my last name, Duckworth at Temple.edu. So that's probably the best way to get to me. Yeah, really interesting. Yeah, so um, I encourage the listeners if anyone is like me and if anyone is from philosophy background and wants to look at uh, the different traditions that are there and try to understand some of the um, aspects, the discussion, the philosophical discussions that are there in different traditions, specifically coming to the Tibetan Buddhism, then. I think you all need to get a hold of this uh, very work. So thank you very much, uh, Dr. Douglas Duckworth, for having this conversation with me at New Books Network. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much, Tia. It's been a pleasure.